And that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? Jesus saves. You know, uh, the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. And so every time that we say the name Jesus, that's exactly the truth that we're declaring, that our God is indeed Savior. And Christmas is proof that He's Savior because He sent His Son into the world. And Jesus came with a mission, and that mission involved suffering and dying giving his life for us so that we might have eternal life. And so praise the Lord. Luke chapter 1, in just a moment or two, we'll read beginning at verse 26. I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you to hear that Christmas, even though Andy Williams says it's the most wonderful time of the year, uh, for a lot of folks it's the most stressful time of the year. There's all kinds of decisions that you have to make. Uh, get-togethers and a lot of plans go into those get-togethers and gift exchanges and all such as that. And for some folks, this time of year can be a time of unwanted pressure, uh, loneliness, uh, family squabbles. I know none of y'all have that issue going on in your families or extended families, only uh, a few, uh, but all of us can identify with that to some degree. And for some folks, this time of year brings up its fair share of painful memories. Uh, sometime back, I read an article that said at least 65 to 70 percent of people who were surveyed admitted to being stressed out every year around Christmas time. And so, while there are various reasons for much of that stress, I think we would just all have to admit. But there's a lot of stress that we encounter this time of year that's really self-induced. Uh, it's not Christmas itself that brings all of that stress, but really it's what we've done with it. And sometimes the man-made expectations that we've come up with and attached to this time of year. And so you and I, as the followers of Jesus, we understand the real meaning of this Christmas season. And it goes far beyond all of the typical celebration. It's much deeper than exchanging gifts. It shines much brighter than all of the decorations, as beautiful as they are. Now, here's the thing. Regardless of where life finds you this morning, Christmas is joyful and can be joyful whenever you come to understand it in its true redemptive context. The fact that Jesus saves... Christmas is all about God's message of redemption. One person has said that Christmas really honors a divine person and remembers a divine event. It doesn't celebrate human achievement, but divine accomplishment. So much so that what we're talking about this time of year, uh, we're not celebrating what man has done or something that man has come up with. No, we're celebrating what God has done in the person of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's nothing man-made about the true Christmas story. It's the most miraculous, compelling story in history. 
And the good news is, it's a true story. Because the Christmas story doesn't begin with that phrase, once upon a time. Now, I know a lot of you, when you hear that phrase, once upon a time, we automatically associate it with some type of fairy tale or some type of myth or that kind of thing. But when Matthew, for example, begins his gospel, he doesn't begin with that phrase, once upon a time. No, he begins with a genealogy. He begins the message of the Christmas story with a genealogy, showing that this is real history here that we're reading about in the Gospels. Luke does the same thing, though he doesn't begin with the genealogy. He wants you to know that the events associated with Christmas and the Gospel story are anchored in real time, where God has acted upon the stage of human history to fulfill his promises that were made centuries and centuries ago. In fact, we'll read in in just a moment, but if you were to go back up to the very beginning of Luke's gospel, in in verse 1, he talks about many who have undertaken uh, this task of compiling a narrative of things that have been accomplished. Uh, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and uh, ministers of the word, Luke says they've delivered them to us. And so Luke, he writes his gospel really from um, the meticulous detail of a a historian. Dr. Luke uh, was a historian, and much of what Luke writes about, he interviews eyewitnesses who can verify and testify all of the events of the gospel story concerning the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, And I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider this, but perhaps one of those eyewitnesses that Luke would have had an opportunity to identify or or, uh, interview would have been Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because much of what you see in this first chapter of Luke, uh, from Mary's perspective, where we're, we're told the birth account of Jesus, there's some detail that's given as to what God was doing in her heart Uh, what she says in response to this message of learning that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And so much of that is from Mary's eyewitness perspective. I imagine that Luke would have had an opportunity to interview her one-on-one. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we continue in our sermon series through December. I've just simply called it the characters of Christmas. And we're just looking at various characters that are mentioned in the story, some who perhaps are more familiar than others. And we began last week by looking at perhaps an obscure character that you may have never really considered, and that's the prophet. And and I really tried to drive home this point that Christmas is all about the fulfillment of prophecy. And in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew writes, and he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14, where the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a prophecy uh, more than 700 years before the birth of Christ that was made by the prophet Isaiah. And it's really centering in on this focal point of redemptive history where the Messiah is going to come into our world, and that's exactly what Matthew says happens with the birth of Jesus. And so the prophet is a very important character then in the Christmas story. But a second character that I want us to consider this morning from Luke chapter 1 is what I'm just simply calling the woman. 
And, and this morning, we're going to look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Mary herself. And I'm going to show you how Mary really, uh, she is the recipient of blessing as she gets to be the instrument that God uses through whom Messiah makes his entrance into our world of fallen humanity. So if you have your Bible there, Luke chapter 1, let's begin reading with verse number 26. The Bible says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. By the way, you ought to take your pen or your highlighter or whatever you've got to write with and underline verse 37, because that's a promise to live by, isn't it? For nothing will be impossible with God. You look at the events of Christmas and you wonder, how could all of this come about? How could all of this happen? Well, let me tell you, it's not by man's strength or man's cleverness. Man didn't come up with this story, but Christmas came about all by the power of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I'm going to stop reading there, even though I am going to make some comments from the verses that follow. I want to preach from this subject this morning as we just simply consider the woman here in this story of Christmas. Uh, God's redempt redemptive plan comes to find its fulfillment with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mary came to understand this and the response that she has is one of joyful worship. And she really reminds us that Christmas is a time of celebration, not because of all of the human uh, superficial attachments oftentimes that we, we, we have associated with this time of year, but really it's all about the Lord's redemptive plan. And we really see how the woman uh, is a real key character in God bringing about his redemptive plan, fulfilling his redemptive promise with the birth of the Messiah. And so just a few things that I want you to notice here about God's redemption plan. First of all, notice with me how Mary uh, is given the message of God's redemptive plan here in these verses that we've read. 
Uh, verse 26 begins with this statement that it was in the sixth month that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Galilee. That is, it was the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, we didn't read it, but if you were to go back up earlier in chapter 1, you would discover that there is another remarkable pregnancy that happens as another woman uh, is the recipient of God's divine favor, and that's Elizabeth. Uh, she and her husband, Zechariah, are going to have a child in their old age. He, too, will be the fulfillment of promise. His birth will be miraculous, but not quite to the degree that Mary's birth will be miraculous. Because Elizabeth and Zechariah, they learn that they're going to have a son, and this son is going to be named John, and, and he's going to be the last of the Old Testament prophets and he's going to be the fulfillment of prophecy himself because it's going to be John who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. John is going to be the one who's going to pave the way for the ministry of God's Messiah. Like a herald of old, he's going to announce the coming of the king and he's going to tell his generation to make ready the king's arrival. And so here in verse 26 then, Luke is really showing us the connection between these two narratives, between these two women, Elizabeth and Mary. And it's interesting that God sends Gabriel from heaven to Galilee to an obscure little village named Nazareth, and there he delivers a message to an obscure virgin girl named Mary. And so don't miss out on the importance of what's being said there in verse number 26 because Nazareth was a place that would not have showed up on Google Maps. <laughs> you ever been trying to get somewhere and you knew a particular address or you knew a particular town but it just didn't seem to show up on Google? Google hadn't caught up with, I guess, the rest of the world or whatever. Or it may just be the place you're looking for is so obscure that Google doesn't recognize it. That's kind of how it is with Nazareth. Uh, it was so far off the beaten path uh, that in John chapter 1, uh, Nathaniel, when he's being called as a disciple of Jesus, when he first learns that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so you've got this unlikely place, and now you have Mary, she's an unlikely person, just a poor peasant girl from a relatively unimportant family, you might could say that she's a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But it just like God to include these types of people in his overall plan. Aren't you grateful that God knows who those nobodies are in those nothing towns in the middle of nowhere? You may feel like God doesn't know who you are, where you're from, or what's going on in your life. In your mind, you may have convinced yourself that God has bigger issues to deal with than what's going on in your insignificant world. But let me tell you something. If not one sparrow falls from heaven to earth that God's not aware of, don't you think that he's keenly aware of what's going on in your life? Amen. There is no such thing as an insignificant person when it comes to God's loving, providential care in your life. And so this statement then that Luke is making, that the angel Gabriel, the last time we heard from Gabriel was in the book of Daniel. And there's been 400 long years of silence. There's not been any prophet in Israel. God's people have not heard from heaven. So here you have God in his own time. He's responding and he's, he's fulfilling the promises that were made many centuries prior to this. 
By the way, a lot of people feel like maybe God has forgotten about them simply because they expect God to operate on their own schedules and not His. But God don't operate on my schedule. And He doesn't operate on your timetable. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them which were under the law. In other words, at the right time on God's calendar, he sent his son into the world. That's what's going on here in Luke chapter 1. And the fact that Gabriel shows up in Nazareth, this would have drawn utter amazement from those in the first century world because even those who were looking for the Messiah to come, they weren't looking for him to show up in Nazareth. Uh, They especially weren't looking for him to come from the region of Galilee, which in the first century, Galilee was a predominantly Gentile area. There were Jews living there, but there were also a lot of Gentiles living there in this area. So much so that Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah, when Jesus is beginning his ministry, Matthew sees this as fulfillment of prophecy because Jesus is beginning his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in the dark have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so it's remarkable that God has sent the Messiah into our world, especially when you consider the fact that he chooses to announce the news to a place that was predominantly Gentile men and women. Because it's almost as if God is saying, here is the Savior of the world both Jew and Gentile, if there's any hope of salvation to be found, it is in my son. And it's a message that needs to go out to the whole wide world. And so here you have Gabriel showing up in an unlikely place to an unlikely person. This is God's grace on display in an unlikely place to an unlikely person. Now listen, isn't that the story of your life? It's the story of my life. Uh, This is something that the Apostle Paul even says uh, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, when he wants them to reflect back on their testimony and how they came to faith in Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. In other words, he's saying... It really wasn't a matter of your pedigree or your educational requirement or degree. It really isn't so much an issue of your spiritual lineage, who your parents were, who your grandparents were, what they did. That doesn't give you any credit or standing at all when it comes to your relationship with God because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But God specializes in showing grace to people in an unlikely place, unlikely people, so that it can all be to the praise of his glory, so that no human flesh can boast in his presence. And you see this going on here in in Luke chapter 1. Now, a few things that Mary learns as far as this message of God's redemptive plan is concerned. Notice how she's really assured of God's presence with her life there in verses 28 and 29. God's sure presence. Here's what Gabriel says to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And that's going to be a message that she's going to need because this is going to be a roller coaster ride in life for Mary. 
There are going to be people who are going to come along, no doubt, and they're going to whisper behind her back. Her pregnancy is going to be scandalous. And she's going to be the topic of conversation, no doubt. And the thing is, the only thing that she would have to cling to was this understanding that God was orchestrating the events in her life. God was with her. God was achieving his purposes in her. And so her immediate reaction there, verse 29, she's troubled, which means to be shaken in mind. The idea is she was startled by Gabriel's appearance, and she didn't necessarily know what it all meant. And so she's shaken. Now listen, some of you folks might say that kind of is descriptive of me this morning. I'm shaken in mind. I'm shaken. Maybe something's happened in your life to, to shake you and bring you to a point of fear, anxiety. If 65 to 70% of people admit to being stressed out this time of year, I guarantee you there are a few of you in the room who would probably be in that category. But listen, what does it mean for you to know that as a Believer in Jesus Christ, you have this promise, God is with you. He's there with you in the ups and downs of life. He's there with you when you experience the disappointments in life. He's there with you when you don't necessarily understand what's going on and, and, and you can't fill in the details and you're wondering, God, what are you up to? What you have to hold on to as a believer is the promise of God's presence with you in the thick of it, men and women. He's not come to spare us from pain, but he's promised that he will be our comforting presence in the midst of it. And that's a good word. And so here you have God's presence with her. She's assured of this. And then notice something else that the angel says. It has to do with God's special favor. The angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word favor there translate, uh, translates the Greek word uh, charis or grace. It's the idea that Mary has found grace in the eyes of God. Now, there's a lot of folks who come into our church from various backgrounds. Over the years, I've had the privilege of being able to baptize several of you who perhaps have come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. And I've had conversations about Mary and the role that Mary plays uh, in, in, in Christianity. And Roman Catholicism would see Mary as being a, a source of grace, a dispenser of grace. But that's not what this means here when the Bible says that she's full of grace or she's found grace in the eyes of God. It doesn't mean that she's the source of grace, but that she is the subject of grace just like me and you. She's not one to dispense grace. She's one who has experienced grace. She's receiving the grace of God. This is God who is going to work in her life. Given the fact that she's an unlikely person to be chosen for such an awesome privilege of, of giving birth to the Messiah, I mean, you can only imagine her shock and dismay at this message. And so what's going to be the reassurance that she needs but God's presence with her and God's grace to her, this was to be her confidence in life. And that's something that's true for every believer in Jesus. You, you've got this awesome promise of God's presence with you and God's grace to you. And so when you understand that, what can you not face when you understand it in those terms? So God's special favor, God's sure presence, and then notice something else, God's sovereign rule. 
This message of his redemption plan, it all involves the sovereign rule of God. And Mary is, she's sort of let in on the fact that she's going to conceive. And she's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the Bible says he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And this is all fulfillment of prophecy. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now listen to this. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the very thing that, that uh, spiritually minded, worshipful uh, Jewish men and women had been looking for for centuries. For God to honor the promises that were made to Abraham, for God to honor the covenant that was established with David, that he would never cease to have a son who would be seated upon the throne. Now, I've already told you about the political circumstances in those days. Israel's under bondage. They're under occupation. Uh, in the first century, it's Roman occupation, but the land had been overrun for decades and decades, really centuries, by Gentile powers. And so the hopeful of Israel were looking for the Messiah to step onto the scene. They knew that he would be the son of David. They knew that he would be the one who would bring about their liberation and freedom. And he would be the one who would rule and reign and establish shalom. That word shalom means peace. In the Hebrew understanding, it's reference to everything that God has created functioning according to the creator's design as God has originally intended creation to function. So that the messianic understanding recognizes that when Messiah steps onto the scene, he's going to restore the shalom that Adam's sin has broken. Where creation has now been subject to bondage because of the curse of sin, when Messiah comes, he's going to reverse the effects of the fall, and he's going to restore what was forfeited and lost in Adam. That's the theme that you see emerge all throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first promise of the Redeemer is made. There is uh, our first parents. They're being held accountable by the Lord God. God is speaking a curse on the serpent who deceived Eve. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, here's what God says to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head, though it means the serpent is going to bruise his heel. In theology, this is referred to as the proto-evangelium, which simply means first gospel. It's the very first mention of the gospel. Now think about this. It's not by coincidence that the promise is made that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, even though it means that his own heel is going to be bruised in the process. That's the entire storyline of Scripture, folks. It involves the seed of the woman. The Bible doesn't say it will be the seed of the man. It's the seed of the woman. So that there's this sense of messianic hope with every birth that happens in Israel from that point forward for the most part, for the hopeful, for the watchful, for the worshipful. It's why you see God often solving the dilemma of the day through the birth of a baby, and he often does it through impossible circumstances, such as Abraham and Sarah who were barren. We could go through Scripture and see this over and over again. You get the point. 
And then you've got that wonderful messianic prophecy that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Mary is learning. She is involved now. She's the instrument through which God's going to bring that blessing into the world. And the angel says, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he's going to save his people. He's going to be the son of the Most High. He's the Messiah. He's the hope of all that the prophets wrote about. Now listen, folks, I've heard it said that every baby is a vote for the future. You ever thought about just how babies are just such bundles of joy? And I know they come with all kinds of smells and but they're just something sweet, something hopeful, something precious about a baby. There's hope associated with the birth of a baby. And it's almost a way of saying that we believe in the promises of God. First Timothy chapter two, the apostle Paul writes and says that Eve, she was deceived by the serpent, she became a transgressor, and yet this statement is made, she will be saved through bearing children. The idea being that God's going to honor his promise. He's going to send a redeemer into the world, but it's going to be through the birth of a child. Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, his reward. And so this message then that Mary is receiving, this is about the sovereign rule of God, this is about the redemptive plan of God, and that's the message that she's learning about here. It's remarkable. Now, not only do we see the message of God's redemptive plan here in this story of the woman, but then notice, secondly, the mystery of God's redemptive plan. How's all of it going to come to pass? How's it going to happen? In fact, that's a question that Mary herself asks the angel Gabriel there in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? Or how is all this going to happen, seeing that I know not a man? And her question here, it's not one so much of doubt as much as it is of perplexity. She knows how this works. She's genuinely perplexed as to how she's going to conceive and give birth. Now, she and Joseph, they're, they're in the betrothal phase of their marriage. But again, there are three component parts of a Jewish marriage ceremony. They're in the second phase which means that she and Joseph have not yet come together in the physical sense. And so she's then let in on this profound mystery that God is going to bring about this miraculous conception in her womb. Though she's going to be the earthly mother, the child will have no earthly father. And so again, this is fulfillment of that Genesis 3.15 promise. This is the seed of the woman who's going to arrive onto the scene. Now, folks, let me tell you something. You deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you deny the heart and soul of Christianity. Amen. You may not be able to explain it, but if you explain it away, you may lose your soul in the process. Because there's no other way that our Savior could be both fully God and fully man apart from this virgin birth. If we're to be rescued from our sin, that means that our Redeemer, He has to be fully human so that He can identify with us in our sin. 
And yet, if he's to save us from our sin, that means he's got to be fully God because only God can save us and rescue us from our helplessness and from our sinfulness. And mystery of mysteries, that's what you have in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And Mary asks this question, how will all of this come about? And notice the angel answers her and says, to begin with, that it will all be by the power of God's Spirit. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. In fact, the language that's used there, it's the same language that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the Shekinah glory of God as it comes to fill the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple. It's the same language that we see used in Genesis chapter 1 that speaks of the Spirit of God as He was hovering over the face of those watery depths prior to creation. And here you have this conception that's going to be brought about by miraculous means, and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit Himself is going to produce this conception in Mary's womb. Because again, I said it last week, I'll say it again this morning, this does not mean that now the Son of God is beginning. No, He's being born into our world because He has no beginning. The eternal God is simply taking on flesh at this point, coming into our world, identifying with us as those He's come to save. And so it's all by the power of God's Spirit. And so listen, is anything too hard for God? By the way, can I just say this? Something similar to this happens every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Because you know that that's no less a miracle? You and me, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, according to what Ephesians chapter 2 says. And if there's to be any hope whatsoever, it's the seed of the Word of God that's got to be planted into the heart of a person. And it's the Spirit of the living God who produces life in that person. So that you can't pat yourself on the back when it, and congratulate yourself for being such a good, righteous person when you come to faith in Jesus. No, God saved you. God's rescued me. God's done something for me that I cannot do for myself. And the good news of the gospel is he can save anybody. And this task of evangelism we're called to as believers in Jesus, we're to just simply take the precious seed of the gospel and we're to share it with everybody we can. And we're to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit who gives life and, and who produces conversion and who brings people to an understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. I pray that happens every time I preach. We're to pray that that happens every time we have an opportunity to share our faith with someone we work with or interact with throughout the week. And so this will all be by the power of God's Spirit, and it will all be to the praise of God's grace. Mary learns that this is really all just by the grace of God, the power of God in her life. I love how she responds in verse 38. She just simply says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. That's the way we always ought to respond to God's call on our lives. No questions asked, no excuses given. She just simply says, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. That's submission. That's obedient faith right there. 
And it ought to be characteristic of every disciple of Jesus. And so all of this is just going to be to the praise of God's grace. Now, we didn't read these verses, but you get into verse 39, and you'll find out that Mary, she immediately goes with haste into the hill country, and she, she, she finds Elizabeth, her relative. And these two ladies, I mean, they have a worship service when they get together. And, and Mary greets Elizabeth as soon as she gets there, and she lets Elizabeth know what's happened as far as the message from the angel. And now watch this. The Bible says that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, when she hears the greeting of Mary, the baby leaps in her womb. I mean, it's three months before little John the Baptist is going to be born, but three months before his birth, he's already preaching a message. This is his first prophecy. Hey, don't tell me that it's not a baby in the womb of its mother. Life begins at conception. Here you have a baby in the womb of his mother leaping with joy over the news that the Messiah is going to be born and this is little John the Baptist bearing witness as to who Jesus Christ truly is. And Elizabeth, she just cries out there in verse 42, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so she and Mary, they just worship God together when they consider how God has been so gracious in their lives. So here you have the message of God's plan of redemption. You've got the mystery of it. I'm talking about the virgin birth and all that's associated with that. But then notice number three, and finally, the majesty of God's redemptive plan. Because here, we're, we're, you get down to verse 46, and you'll notice that Mary, she, she's speaking here, and we find her song of worship or praise. It's known as the Magnificat. That's just a Latin expression taken from that word there in verse 46, magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. So what you see in this passage, she's simply rejoicing in God, recognizing that the child that she's going to give birth to, he is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. This is majesty and mystery, and it provokes worship in her heart that God, this unfolding story of redeeming the fallen members of Adam's race, God is keeping his covenant. God is honoring his promises. And so she sees that this is cause for personal worship. And that's what she does there, beginning in verse 46. Look at, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Because he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And Mary says, when I think about what God has done in my life and how he's been so gracious and kind. When I think about who he is, I can't help but magnify the Lord in my soul. That doesn't mean that she's making God bigger. You can't make God any bigger than he already is. What it means is she's making him bigger. She's enlarging him in her own heart and life. That's what that word magnifies means there in verse number 46. It means to make great or enlarge. She's literally saying, my soul enlarges the Lord. That's what worship does, by the way. 
Uh, when your mind uh, contemplates the truth of who God is, when your mind is saturated with the truth of his word, the response of that will be God being enlarged or magnified in your own heart. Has God been enlarged in your heart lately? Listen, A.W. Tozer, I think he said the most important thing about a person is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And for a lot of people, God is nothing more than a genie in the sky to give me whatever I want. And for a lot of people, Christianity is nothing more than just a fire escape plan. But salvation is so much more than a fire escape. Salvation is God doing for you in Christ what you cannot do for yourself. Redeeming you, purchasing you, forgiving you, washing you from your your sin and your guilt, restoring the image of God in you that sin has marred giving you eternal life. That's his life. It's the life of God in you. That's what Christianity is. And when you think of all that God's done in order to make that reality, how can you not magnify him in your heart? What we need when we get to church, I'll tell you what we need. We need a big magnifying lens. That's what we need. Uh, The songs that we sing ought to be like a big magnifying lens. The sermons that I preach ought to be like a big magnifying lens where we're zeroing in on who Christ is and all that he's done. You know what a magnifying lens does, don't you? I put these on my head so that I can read. Makes things clear. Uh, A few months ago, I'm going to embarrass him, I know, but Andrew was out in the driveway and uh, he had, I, I saw him, there was a little pile of leaves out in the driveway. He had a little magnifying glass that he got from somewhere. It was a hot day, not a cloud in the sky. And so I walked out in the driveway and I saw just a little plume of smoke coming up from those leaves. He was filtering that sunlight through that magnifying. It was a controlled burn, that's what it was. I was glad it was in the driveway and not out in the yard under the tree. I need a big magnifying lens when it comes to who God is so I can zero in on his majesty and worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what Mary is doing here. My soul magnifies the Lord. God's grace in her life is cause for personal worship. And then she also says that it serves as the evidence of prophetic fulfillment. Along about verse 50, she says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now listen to this. Listen to what she says that He's done. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so she's just simply praising God for his mercy, his strength, his provision, his grace. God has remembered his promise. God has shown mercy to his people. The Redeemer, he's coming. The very one, the seed of the woman who was foretold Long, long ago. You know, some time ago, I saw a fascinating painting that really illustrates the storyline of the Bible. Everything that I've been preaching about this morning, it was such a fitting illustration of it. I've actually got a picture of this painting. We'll throw it up on the screens for you. But the name of this painting is called Mary Consoling Eve. And it's really profound when you think about it. 
And what you find here, it's a picture of Mary who's comforting Eve, redirecting her guilt-ridden head upward toward the baby in her womb. You'll notice that there in one hand, uh, in Eve's hand, there's the forbidden fruit. But her other hand is upon Mary's belly. And she's reflecting upon the fruit of her womb, the one who's going to defeat sin and death ushered in by the failure of our first parents. Now notice underneath their feet, you'll see that there's a serpent. And that serpent is entangling Eve, but notice upon whom Mary is confidently treading upon the head of that serpent. (laughs) And it's all an illustration of how the fruit of the first woman offered to her husband ushered death and sin into our world. But you see, it's through the fruit of the womb of a woman, the seed of the woman offered to the world, this will also be the undoing of all that's wrong in the world. And my friends, that's what Christmas is all about. It's what Charles Wesley described in that magnificent Christmas carol that we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glories to the newborn king. The last stanza of that carol says this, Rise the woman's conquering seed and bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature now restore. And so, folks, that's what we learn from this character the woman in the Christmas story. Again, it's the fulfillment of promise. God has done all that's necessary to rescue and to restore fallen humanity in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my invitation to you this morning is this. Do you believe this? Have you come to the point in your own life where you've repented of your sin and you've believed the good news of the gospel? And you've turned to Jesus Christ as your one and only hope of rescue. And you recognize that he is indeed the seed of the woman who's come, crushing the head of the serpent through his own death and through his own resurrection. You know, Christianity, you don't spell Christianity D-O, do. A lot of people think that's how you spell Christianity. No, Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. This is what God has done in the person of his son. And will you accept it by faith as a gift of God's grace? Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Parker's going to come and he's going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. Now some of you need to respond this morning to the message. You'd say, Pastor, you know, I, I need to be saved. I want to be baptized. I want to go public with my faith in Jesus and if that's you this morning we've got some pastors who would love to counsel with you right here at the front we'll pray with you and even after the service is over if you'll come and find one of us we can talk to you about baptism and what it means to be a Christian get you connected with some folks in our church family maybe you need to join our church and this is the place where God has had you, you've been a, a guest perhaps, why not, just, why not just become one of us and join the, join the bunch? We'd love to have you. Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm so thankful for the message of the gospel and for the seed of the woman who came. And even though, Lord, his own heel would be bruised in the process, he has crushed the serpent's head through his own death and resurrection. 
which means that our salvation, Lord, though it's free, it's not cheap because it cost the Son of God his own precious life. Though he was sinless in every way, perfect, spotless as a Lamb of God, Lord, he was slaughtered and he suffered and he bled and he died and he endured the wrath of God upon the cross so that sinners like us could be saved and forgiven and have eternal life so that shalom could be restored to this sin-cursed planet. And Lord, we look around in our world and we see that there's so much wrong in the world. It's because you're still at work and you're building your church. People are being saved, but the day is coming when the God-man's going to return to earth. And he who is ruling and reigning from heaven's throne, he is going to be seated upon a throne and rule for a thousand years in the kingdom of Messiah. And Lord, there's so much mystery there and so much we don't understand. But Father, this is the hope that we have as believers. This wonderful Christmas hope that's ours. And Lord, we rejoice. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.